We've been studying the Gospel of John. We've been considering what it looks like when we encounter the living God, when we come face to face with Jesus, what that does, how it transforms us, how we cannot stay the same when we encounter Jesus. And so the prayer is that today that you truly would encounter him that this would not be a religious thing or you just check the box or you're here because of cultural expectations or some cultural Christianity or churchianity, if you will, but that this would be real. That's what we're after, is truly see Jesus, see that he is God in the flesh and that he is Messiah. As you continue in John, we're in chapters 18 and 19 today, which covers the betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. And next week on Easter, we will look at chapter 20, which describes the resurrection of Jesus. As I poured over this text and read it several times, and of course, I've read John before, but you read it afresh, um, Man, it was, it was gripping. It was emotional and just soul-stirring. And it brought this, um, this new sense of awe of who Jesus is. And so I pray that this morning, as we're under the authority of God's word, I pray that you will have a similar experience of just having greater awe awakened in your soul for who Jesus is. Let me give you the primary truth of these two chapters that is a unit of Jesus' betrayal and an ultimate crucifixion and death. And it's very simple. It's that Jesus is Messiah. Everything that you're going to see in John 18 and 19 today is pointing to, is revealing that Jesus is Messiah, that he is the one the Old Testament promised, that he is God in the flesh, that he is, as we just sung, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he is the lamb takes with the sin of the world, that it's Jesus. And so it's crying out, see him, he's here, believe in him, love him, worship him, depend on him, trust him, give your life to him, he is worthy. This is what you're seeing is just this avalanche of revelation that is meant to just cascade over us and just leave us just bound before him in awe. That's John 18 and 19. And there's lots of themes and a lot of different things going on, but I only have an hour? <laughs> 45 minutes. It's funny. Like, we plan our, our worship services and about how long the service will take in each segment. And it's so funny. We'd slot 40 minutes for the sermon. I don't know why we do that. Katie, why do we do that? Like, but we do it. It's like we're, we're hopeful. Like, maybe this Sunday. But no, it doesn't ever happen the next Sunday. But it's an amazing text. And so we're going to read it because 
if all I did is just read it, it would have been worth gathering. There is such power in just reading the word and being under its inspiration and its authority and the spirit then breeds life and conviction and he brings healing and growth when we just are under the word. But let me give you just three specific themes. If you're writing these down, that you can be looking for these as making your observations, as you're following along with this text, there's three specific messianic themes. So Jesus is Messiah, and there's three messianic themes that are interwoven in John 18 and 19. And it's revealing who Jesus is. The first one is the kingship of Jesus. So as Messiah, he is the king. And so we're going to see his majesty. So he is the sovereign. And so first theme is his messianic kingship. Second, we'll see the sacrifice of Jesus. So as Messiah, he is the sacrifice, the lamb of God, the Passover lamb. He is the ultimate atoning sacrifice. And so what you see here is the messianic sacrifice of Jesus. And third theme is we see the mission of Jesus. So his messianic mission, his purpose for why he came, why the Father sent him here. And so you'll see these three themes throughout these two chapters, all interwoven, the kingship, the sacrifice, and the mission of Jesus. Let's begin with John 18. We'll start slow, and then we'll pick up some speed. We'll start reading just the first verse, John 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across a Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So it begins with them going across a Kidron Valley. It was a little brook when it rained a lot. It's right next to Jerusalem. It's across from that is the Mount of Olives. And so that's where they head. And at the Mount of Olives, there is like a walled off garden known as Gethsemane. Now, it's not called that in John, but if you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's named Gethsemane. And so the word Gethsemane, which is where Jesus went, this garden, the word means olive press, which makes sense because it's right there at the Mount of Olives where, where they would harvest olives. And if you've been to the Middle East, like when I lived there for several years, I just discovered the joy of olives and dates. Like, I love those two. They're expensive here. Like, man, dates are so, they were so cheap in Abu Dhabi. But olives also is very, very Middle Eastern. And so they would grow these olives, and then you would take a large stone, and you put the olives in it, and then a, a second stone, much larger, that you would then like roll over and squish, like press the olives to get the oil out. So you had to crush the olives, destroy the olives in order to get the oil. And the word Gethsemane, where Jesus went, it's called olive press, where olives are crushed. Isaiah 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of God. God promised eight centuries earlier that Messiah would be 
crushed. Why? As an offering for our guilt. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Mark 14, 34, which captures the same scene of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying with his three friends, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, were asleep and not praying with him. It says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And so Jesus' soul had so much sorrow, and he goes and he prays in the garden that is foretelling what's going to happen the very next morning when he would be crucified. He would be crushed under the holy wrath of God. It says in Luke 22, the cross-reference here, that Jesus prayed in this same garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweats became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He is beginning to feel what's about to happen, which is on the cross, he would feel the full weight of being crushed under God's holy wrath, where a payment for sin has to be made. So you're beginning to see already in verse 1, pointing to his sacrifice as the Messiah. And he prays, Father, your will, not mine. Um, quick sidebar, not in the text per se, but for a different day, a whole different sermon. Men, you want to be men of God? This is a picture of that. Jesus praying, Father, your will be done, not mine, but yours. That is a picture of a man. That is a picture of biblical manhood. That is what you see, not passive and weak and not overbearing and manipulative or controlling, but one who is strong and knows the Father and is fearless and is submitting to the will of God. It is a stunning picture of manhood and is what you see here with the Messiah. Let's keep reading John 18, verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that what would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Judas arrives at the garden with a cohort, which was up to 600 soldiers. We don't know if this was the whole cohort or part, but it was undeniably hundreds. So picture this. You have Jesus with his three closest men, and you have literally hundreds of soldiers that are coming to arrest Jesus. You think, well, that's kind of overkill. No, it wasn't. 
Because the Romans were afraid of a riot. They were afraid of a mob. They were afraid of this Jesus who was so famous, who had preached before hundreds of thousands of people. When we read this in John 7, when he's publicly preaching and the high priest is pouring water with his golden pitcher at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and you have literally hundreds of thousands pressed in and it's completely quiet. And Jesus stands up and says, I am living water in front of hundreds of thousands of people at the temple. Like, Jesus was not shy. He was bold. He preached publicly, and thousands were following him. And so the Romans thought, well, we, we better, you know, send a big enough army where if there's a riot, we can just stop it in its tracks. But they didn't know what they were getting into. This is the Lamb of God. He is the king. But he's also the Lamb who is being led to the slaughter so that we can be forgiven but I love where it says, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, complete sovereignty, complete knowledge, complete authority, and complete control. What is to say that he did? Two words, so important. It says, he came forward. He stepped forward. Jesus did not shrink back. He wasn't afraid. He joyfully, willingly, sovereignly stepped forward in love, about to be arrested. And when Jesus speaks, so you have humble Jesus and his three sleepy friends and hundreds of soldiers, and Jesus says, It's me. I am he. He says, I am. And what happens to those that are right there? They fall to the ground. Like, are, are you following this? They're there to arrest Jesus. And Jesus speaks, and they fall to the ground. It's like they saw God or something. Because isn't that what you see in the Bible over and over when someone encounters the living God? What happens to human beings when they see God? They fall to the ground. And these evil men who are just following orders, they go to arrest Jesus and he speaks. And when he speaks, there is such authority and sovereignty. We looked at the book of Revelation a few months ago, and if you can think back to the Revelation 1 Jesus who speaks, and it is like a waterfall. It is thundering. And even here, pre-resurrection, Jesus speaks and his complete authority and sovereignty. And these men fall to the ground. Verse 7. So he asked them again, because they're on the ground, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This is to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none, not one. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, 
put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The good shepherd from John 10, who said that he would not lose a single one from his fold. He would not lose one sheep. You see it here. The good shepherd who's laying down his life will not lose a single one of his beloved followers. And what strikes me as so amazing is Jesus is here being arrested. So who would you think would be in control? Who would be in command? You would think it would be like the captain or the centurion, whoever was leading the soldiers, you would think they're in charge. But who do you see here in command? Who is calling the shots here? It's Jesus. He speaks, they fall to the ground. And then he says, you can arrest me, but you cannot touch these men following me. And they're like, okay. Like, you criminal, we're arresting you, but if you say so, okay. Like, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. Because he's no criminal. He's God in the flesh. You're seeing complete sovereignty. And these men are obeying Jesus, whom they are there to arrest. And then you have like crazy Peter, okay? Like he's out of control. I don't know what he was thinking, but I want to ask him one day, hey, bro, so like what were you thinking when there were like hundreds of soldiers and you pull out your, your, your little dagger and like what, how far did you think you were going to get? I don't know. Like maybe Peter honestly thought, Maybe Jesus needs me to prime his pump a little. Like maybe, maybe if I pull out my sword, then maybe Jesus will call down fire from heaven. Maybe Jesus will then bring his legion of angels and finish the job. Like I don't know what he was thinking or if he just wasn't thinking. But it would be very difficult with a, a fairly short sword that he was carrying to just like go slice someone's ear off. Like it was designed for stabbing, not for slicing. So very likely Peter Loco was trying to kill this servant and like stab him in the face. But the dude likely like dodged and it just hit, no, I'm serious, and hit his ear. Like it would be really hard to like aim and like slice someone's ear perfectly. Like that, that just is not, it doesn't work. Peter was trying to kill the servant. He didn't kill him, but he tore his ear off with his sword. And Jesus, then we do read in the other gospels that he picks up the ear and he heals the man's ear right there on the spot. Again, complete sovereignty, complete control. Tells Peter, stop, put that away. And what's amazing is the soldiers still don't arrest Peter. Because Jesus told them, no. And they obey. Jesus tells Peter, I have to drink the cup that the Father has given to me. Remember, this is happening at Passover. They had that evening, Jesus had observed the Passover meal. Everyone else was going to observe it on Friday at 6 p.m. So that next day. This could have been late at night, so it could have been early morning on Friday morning, but we don't know exactly, but it was either late night, Thursday, early morning, fr Friday, 
And so Friday would be, as we'll see in a minute, called the day of preparation, where they were preparing for the Passover meal. Now, a traditional Passover meal would have four different cups that throughout the evening, as you eat, like eat and drink and read scripture, there's four different small cups of wine that you would drink. But there's a fifth cup that no one would drink, but it would be left at the empty seats. Now, this empty seat is for the prophets who was to come. So what you would see is, so you would have these four drinks, and then there was a fourth one that was sometimes known as Elijah's cup because it was an empty seat for the prophet Elijah. So when Elijah would come, that would trigger the Messiah's coming. And so, of course, we know that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and that Jesus is Messiah. This fifth cup that no one would drink at the Passover was also, it comes from Jeremiah 25, verse 15. The God of Israel said to me, take from my hands this cup. Listen, this cup filled with wine of my wrath. This cup filled with wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. That fifth cup that was not drank was the cup of God's wrath that they would not drink because the lamb had died in their place and they were waiting for the coming of Messiah who would drink that cup in their place. So when Jesus says that I must drink the cup, he was talking from Jeremiah 25, the cup of God's wrath. It says, wrath on what? On all nations, all people. God's wrath upon all of sinful humanity that Jesus, Messiah, would drink it. Chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First to led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that no man should die, that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the disciples and officers had made a charcoal fire fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple and where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? 
Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a cock crowed. What you see here is the beginning of a kangaroo court. It's a rigged trial. It is not legal. Jesus refuses to give testimony on himself. He's insisting that witnesses would be brought in. Why? Because Jesus knows the Bible. This was an illegal trial. See, the Torah required a testimony of two or three witnesses to establish any accusation. And so Jesus is calm, and he is insistent, and he is basically saying, hey, give me a fair trial. Bring in the witnesses. I have spoken to hundreds of thousands. They've heard me. Bring any of them to see if I have done anything wrong or said anything that is unbiblical. He's calling them to bring witnesses, and they can't produce a single one. So Jesus here is ashamed of nothing because he preached the truth publicly. Now, while at the same time, right outside, watching this unfold, you have Peter overtaken by fear. I'm guessing the adrenaline high from earlier in the evening when he tried to stab someone's face has worn off. And so now he's come to his senses and he, he sees the reality that Jesus is on trial and in big trouble. And so now Peter is afraid and he denies even knowing Jesus three times. So you see this juxtaposed in this text. Jesus denies nothing. Peter denies everything. You see, Peter was overtaken by fear, and he rejected his first love. He disowned his master. Now we'll see in a few weeks that Peter's story isn't over. There is restoration. We'll see that at the end of the series in chapter 21. Let's keep reading about this trial. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show about what kind of death he was going to die. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he had said this. He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So here's kind of like the sequence of this trial, which again was illegal and not, not genuine. He was examined by Annas first. Annas had been the high priest previously. He was the father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. And so even though he wasn't the ruling high priest, he was respected and had a lot of authority and influence. And so they start there to begin kind of the informal trial. Annas questions him. He sends him to the current ruling high priest, his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And then he is sent over to the Sanhedrin. Now, you don't see that here in John, but Luke describes that as he kind of pieces together. The Sanhedrin was the 70 like elders of Jerusalem, of, of Israel, that, that ruled over Judea, which was the province in Rome. But, but they could oversee their own matters to a degree. And the Sanhedrin then convicts Jesus. And then that skipped by John, but it picks up here where he sends them to Pilate. Because remember, the Jews were part of the Roman government, so they didn't have the authority to execute anyone. The Romans reserved that for themselves. So they sent him over to Pilate. Who was Pilate? Well, he was a Gentile. He was a Roman governor who had authority over the region of Judea under the Caesar's authority. So the first time Pilate talks to Jesus and says, nah, man, this dude's crazy, but he's not guilty. So then he sends him to King Herod, which also you see in Luke, it doesn't describe that in John. And then King Herod, he was, he was ruling, he's called a king, but he wasn't really a king. He was under the authority of the Roman emperor, but nonetheless, known as king or tetrarch Herod. And so then Herod examines him. This is the same evil man that had John's head chopped off. That Herod, that's him. So he doesn't want to get his hands dirty, and so he then sends him back to Pilate. Like, are you, are you catching what's going on here? Everyone's passing the buck. It kind of sounds like Washington. It, it's almost like human nature hasn't changed. And it, it seems like Politics hasn't changed. And politicians 
never want the buck to stop with them. They always blame someone else. And so you have these political rulers and no one wants to finally make a decision. He goes back again to the Roman governor, to Pilate. And so what you're seeing here is a mockery of justice. And the Romans, who were so proud of the rule of law, and to be fair, a lot of modern-day law in our government really is Roman. And if you don't think so, go to D.C. It is so Roman. Everything is just, it's overwhelming at times. And they were so proud of the rule of law. And what you see here is a mockery of the law and of truth. These religious leaders here wouldn't enter into Pilate's headquarters because he was a, a Roman governor. And so they didn't want to defile themselves and be unclean by entering in. So just get this, like just get your mind around this. These religious leaders, these rulers, these politicians ultimately, they were okay with conducting an illegal trial and killing the Messiah. But they didn't want to become unclean by stepping into the house of a Gentile. You see, that's what religion does. It blinds us. We can't even see truth. We become man-centered and self-centered, focused on the externals and what everyone else can see publicly, and yet you forget the internal, and you forget love for God and passion for Jesus, and it becomes all about the religious externals, and that's what you see with these evil men. Their hearts were so unclean, and yet, they wanted to maintain the appearance and be kept clean so that they could have the Passover later that next day. But did you notice that the whole time Jesus is calling the shots, Jesus is controlling and dictating the whole conversation? Did you notice that? That Jesus really is the one who is, is dictating how the conversation is flowing. He says, yes, I'm a king, but Pilate, not how you think, not the way that your emperor is a king. It's not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world. So he declares his purpose for coming into the world, he says, to bear witness to the truth. Pilate, of course, doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. So he asks the ultimate question that is so being asked today that you have to be able to answer. What is truth? We live in an age that says there is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. Truth is subjective. You have your truth and I have my truth. And I reject your reality. I reject your truth. I have my own. This is the 21st century. But is it? It was the first century. <clears throat> the thing Pilate didn't understand is that he, when he asked this question, what is truth? He was literally standing right in front of truth incarnate. 
He was standing in front of Jesus, who is truth embodied. Jesus is the truth and the life and the way, and no one goes to the Father except through him. And he says that he is the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's Jesus. He is the truth. He defines what is truth because he himself is the truth. And Pilate still, he's blind, he's lost, he doesn't know. But he does know this. Jesus is innocent and his religious leaders are corrupt. He does know that. But he is a politician. And just like politicians, he cared more about his own power than about the truth. Nothing has changed. Politicians today tend to care more about their power, about their comfort, than about the truth. And they don't care who gets hurt in the process. We see it today in politics. We see it in the first century in politics. And it just raises the question, why do we put our trust in politicians? Why do we do that? And yet, we do. Rather than hoping in the truth, who is Jesus. And Pilate, being a politician, is trying to manipulate and say, well, I'll release Jesus and I'll keep Barabbas. But they say, no, 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 crucify Jesus and release Barabbas instead. And now the name Barabbas, you might know, you may have heard that in the Hebrew, the word bar means son. So like bar Jonah, son of Jonah. So the word bar means son. And you may know that Abba means father. So bar Abba. So his very name, Barabbas, his name means son of the father. You think it's a coincidence that a man named Son of the Father was set free. And if you remember back from John 8, Barabbas' father is Satan because anyone who does not trust in Jesus, their father is Satan. This Son of the Father and the Father being Satan This sinful, evil son of the father was set free so that the true son of the father, the son of the high king, the son of God would then die. And so you see Barabbas being set free so that the son of the father would die in his place. Who do you think Barabbas is? Look in the mirror. And you see Barabbas. We are Barabbas. We are the ones who are guilty, who have actually committed evil and are set free so that the son of the father would die in our place. And so we see these messianic themes being played out. We see the kingship of Jesus, his messianic Kingship, we see sovereignty, control. His kingdom is not of this world. It is spiritual. 
and he's willing the hearts of his people. So you see that he is the king. We see his sacrifice, that he will die in the place of evil men. And we also see his mission, the mission of Jesus. He says, for this purpose I have come. So he's telling us his mission, his reason for coming. And he says, why did he come? To bear witness to the truth, the truth that he is the king, that he is the sacrifice to fulfill this mission of redemption so that we could be forgiven and give God the glory that he deserves. John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him on his, with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, we ought, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his quarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And let that sink in. These men who claim to love God answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This is to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, for by my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We have no king but Caesar. They betrayed their God, their whole Jewish heritage, God's word. They turned their backs on everything that is good and holy to retain their Power. You know, I could describe the gruesome details of flogging, separate from scourging, because they're different, and the thorn, the crown of thorns on his head, and the crucifixion and the nails, and asphyxiation. I, I, I could spend several minutes going through with graphic detail on what all this is, but I won't. I've heard sermons that do, and I walk out feeling manipulated and a little bit queasy. And so I, I don't believe that we should do that, and so I will spare you the grisly, ghastly details because I would rather focus on why Jesus was crucified and who Jesus is. You have an imagination, so you can use it. What we see here is the kingship of Jesus. That is what this text is trying to declare for us to hear, is that he is the king. When this pagan, spineless, evil politician, Pilate, when he says, behold the man, and he displays a beaten and bloodied, wearing a purple robe and wearing a crown of thorns, Jesus, and he, and he says, behold the man. What he didn't even realize is that he was fulfilling an Old Testament messianic prophecy out of Zechariah 
chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man. Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. In verse 13 it says, He shall bear, bear royal honor. So royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Pilate had no idea. He had not, he had not read Zechariah chapter 6. But you see again his kingship when Jesus throws down the gauntlet and says, you have no authority over me unless my father gives it to you. He was submitting himself to the will of the Father. And even though Pilate was just like sticking it to the Jews that he couldn't stand when he writes the inscription that says Jesus is king, Pilate didn't even care or believe that. But you know what he wrote? The truth. Jesus is the king. And he was sovereign over all the suffering and he was sovereign even in his dying end. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We see here the sacrifice of Jesus. While he hung there on the cross, and the soldiers dipped a sponge in sour wine and put it on the end of a hyssop branch and reached it up to Jesus. He was literally there. You could see he was drinking God's justice. That's the picture of what was going on on the cross. God's holy wrath and judgment was upon Jesus in our place. Think back to Exodus chapter 12, the very first Passover, when a lamb with no blemish died, and they took the blood, and they spread it across the doorpost. Do you remember in Exodus 12, verse 22, what kind of branch they use to spread the blood? Hyssop. The Bible truly is an interconnected masterpiece. God's purpose, the moment that Adam rejected God's love, was for his son to come and die in our place. And this was the day of preparation. So what you have is the priests were slaughtering the Passover lambs at the temple preparing for that evening at 6 when they would have the Passover. When Jesus died on that Friday at 3 p.m., 
He didn't just die. He gave up his spirit. He was sovereign in death. He died at the exact precise moment that he sovereignly chose at the exact moment that the priests were in the temple killing the Passover lambs. Because the Lamb of God had just died so that we could be forgiven. And you see this mission of Jesus. He says, it is finished. Redemption is won. The final Passover lamb has died. The price for our sin has been paid. Mission accomplished. It is finished. And if you want to study a text this week, I encourage Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is what you see in that psalm is being fulfilled here in John 18 and 19. And Psalm 22 ends with the words, he has done it. Messiah has done it. It is finished. Redemption is won. Let's finish the text and and wrap up. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that also you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After this things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place were in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. These two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, who were disciples of Jesus, but were fearful. They were afraid. In the end, they followed the example of Jesus. They stepped forward and endured persecution. Likely were canceled by culture of their day. Because they recognize who Jesus was. The king. The sacrifice. Who accomplished the mission of our redemption. With all of your heart, have you repented of your sins? Are you trusting in Jesus for your salvation? 
are you depending on the finished work of Jesus who loves you and who died willingly for you? When we receive his love and his mercy and his grace, you know what happens? It pours out and then we become forgiving, merciful, gracious people. So if you are struggling with lacking forgiveness or having a hard time expressing mercy or grace, then you need to taste the grace and mercy and love of Jesus afresh and receive that from him. And then it can then pour out of you towards others. We see lastly here the mission of Jesus that we have received his mercy for this mission. So what is your life about? Like, what is it really about? May it be about the redeeming work of the Lamb of God and our Savior.